Welcome to the show. I am your host, Chad Burton, Certified Financial Planner. If you have a money question for the show, hit a couple of these in the second segment. Just shoot me an email, chad at chadburton.com. That's chad at chadburton.com. Taxes, insurance, retirement planning, estate planning, investing. It's all fair game. Do everything except the individual stock buy, hold, or sell. Just shoot me an email. And uh, gosh, got to update that intro. 29 years in the business this month. Started at a very, very early age. And I'll kind of get into that later in the show when I talk about some of the rules being passed, whether it's the Department of Labor, SEC, uh, all these governing bodies that are trying to implement rules to stop people from rolling their 401ks into garbage annuity products. And it's becoming a serious enough problem to where multiple entities are getting involved in this. So we'll talk about that. Let's give you a quick market update. So if we look at the S&P 500 and we look at the total return, which includes dividends, right now we're down 12.5% or so for the year. It's been a huge run for the quarter. We gained back 9.3% of the decline. If you remember back in mid-June, the S&P 500 was sitting down about 22%, rallied back up. It's given some back the last few days. So we're sitting at right what is a typical negative year in the stock market. So when the stock market is, you know, it's positive 70% of the time on average, and it's negative 30% of the time. And the, the last time I added up all the negative years and divided by the number of negative years, it was negative 13% or so. So pretty normal, corrective type of year in the stock market. The Russell has uh, gained back for the quarter over 10%. So the Russell 2000 is a small and mid-cap index, down 13.6% for the year. If we look at international developed down 17.3, emerging markets down 17.9. If we carve out the NASDAQ, it's down 20.8%. But again, that's up 12% just for the quarter. And if you think about that, in you feel what the news was like in the first part of July, the first part of this quarter. And that's when the news was, was bad. You know, the recession narrative really kicked in. Um, you know, you have a pretty big consensus that people think that we are in a bit of a global recession, a, a global slowdown, and that doesn't really mean a lot, except it's it's normal and healthy. If anybody's been trying to hire in this environment, they know that yeah, we kind of need a recession. Um, so yeah, the Russell was down twenty five and a half percent in mid June, gained half of that back, um, and then gave four percent of that back in this last week. I still like, when I look at the fundamentals of small and mid-value especially, I still really like the fundamentals there. I think there's a lot of cheap places to go to there. The thing is, is that you do have to be careful of a lot of those value funds are going to have exposure to financials, um, which is kind of a rough go. Um, Not a lot of catalyst there. Still have an inverted yield curve, but a lot of improvement. The 10-year treasury... Uh, the bond market, you know, gave back because when interest rates go up, the bond, the value of bonds go down. Um, so the 10 year treasury went from yielding 2.6 just a few days ago to now 3.03% on the 10 year treasury. And so you're getting kind of in that buy area for buy for bonds again. Uh, the two year treasury is still yielding more. That's the inverted yield curve where, where shorter term. U.S. government bonds are 
yielding 3.32% versus a 10-year U.S. government bond at 3.03. So it's improved a bit, but it's still inverted. And, you know, history shows that inverted yield curve doesn't necessarily mean, oh, there's the recession right around the corner. It's, it's the recessions anywhere from two to 15 months or something like that. And so, which is, you know, clearly when recessions happen every five to seven years, you're going to get that kind of math. So it's not that big of a deal. Obviously clear signs of a global slowdown. I mean, if you look at housing starts, I mean, there's already a recession in housing. Um, between rates and the supply chain of people having to wait for windows and doors and just being scared to start a project. Um, it's, that's definitely a recession. And I do worry. It's interesting. There's so many people that have become real estate agents in the last several years. I just wonder how that's all going to play out. Um, certain consumers already increasing their credit use and having trouble paying utility and cell phone bills. That's because this type of inflation with gas and oil, which has to do with not only just how evil genius Putin is in terms of crashing the oil markets back during COVID and leaving OPEC and then doing what he did now, but it's also the lack of refiners in the U.S. Um, it's hard for any of the companies to want to you know, increase and build new plants where everything from this inflation act, which is clearly not going to help with inflation much. Um, it's just a big push towards, uh, you know, solar and electric and things like that, which is interesting because our infrastructure cannot afford, uh, everybody plugging in electric vehicles. So it has to be, you know, adding solar to homes and things like that. And there's still the whole debate, you know, show me the proof that, these batteries that are being put in the cars is actually better for the environment than clean energy. You just need a good mix so that we can wean ourselves off of the situation. So we don't end up like Europe, Europe tied to, you know, other countries producing energy for us. It's not as much, it's, you got to realize though, it's oil is one thing, but there's also the refiners that turn it into gasoline. That's a big problem. So yeah, housing starts. I mean, we're, we're looking sitting here at, at, at likely peak inflation. But a lot of the numbers went from, okay, it's transitory to peak inflation to it's going to go away to, no, there's going to be some you know, issues that we're going to deal with going forward because we are going to have to bring the supply chain back closer to the U.S. from just being in China, for example. U.S. back in Mexico, building plants. But you know what? Commodity prices are way down in most cases. And so while... You know, everybody's going to look at the situation and say, yeah, we're, we're likely in a recession, which is just two quarters in a row of, of a decline in gross domestic product. Um, the, the narrative has become so much that everybody expects it. So the market like sold off too much, expecting a higher recession. Then it rallied too much. Oh, it's gone away. And then now it's kind of coming back down to, to reality here. Um, it is hard to fathom some sort of a deep recession situation though because the for example the July the July the July US Bureau of Labor Statistics employment report was stronger than expected and so who knows maybe the maybe we'll get a couple of calls that we're not in recession but it's healthy it's a normal part of the economy it shakes out excesses you almost want to see 
it's better to see a recession every five to seven years than bubbles that are created, like the tech bubble or the credit crisis, which was tied to um, real estate and lending money and then repackaging loans and leveraging them and reselling them and all that kind of garbage. It ex- it's shaking out the, you know, the meme stock craziness, the crypto craze, the, the, the FOMO, the fear of missing out. You know, you like to see that shaken out kind of like it has been versus bubbles and fundamental like structural issues with the economy. One of the questions that kind of get is, you know, why maintain any type of international exposure between, you know, international developed like you know, and emerging markets when there's so many issues going on overseas, such as China's zero COVID policy, which is flatline their economy. And then Europe's tie towards Russia on oil. One of the things to note is international was outperforming U.S. for most of the year up until about June. The U.S. was, was down more. Everybody knows it's a mess between the zero COVID policy and Russia. But look, the, there's very low valuations on the price to earnings ratio and high dividends. We've got to see if some of the dividends will be cut. And it's a strong, very strong dollar that nobody talks about right now. Strong U.S. dollar after a decline in international stocks tends to be a good time to allocate some money over there if you don't have any. It's not a time to overweight in international, but you might want to consider adding a little bit over time. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. You can find me at chadbird.com. You're listening to New Focus on Wealth on AM 1220 KDOW. Welcome back into the show. I'm your host, Chad Burton, Certified Financial Planner. If you need some help with your financial planning, retirement plan, to create a distribution plan in retirement let's go to chadburton.com that's chadburton.com at ep wealth we've got over 80 certified financial planner practitioners over 15 billion in assets under management state planning attorneys tax people we got it all check it out also a fiduciary fee only firm and so what does that mean um my history in this business is I actually started in this business at 19 years old. I was going to Portland State. And my grandfather sold annuities and mutual funds at banks um, throughout the last part of his career. They called them investment counselors, but they sold annuities and mutual funds. And after the savings and loan crisis, he went through merger after merger at the banks that he worked at. And he used to joke about having to look up at the sign outside to remember how to answer the phone because the banks changed names so much. Well, one day he finally decided to, to just leave after having his pension meshed with so many times. He essentially took a box of statements and left Washington Mutual. That was the last bank he worked for. It was a little surreal when I saw that bank go under. And I was majoring in engineering and math. Um, he was the type of guy that goes into any room and can talk to anybody like they're best friends. And I'm more of a extroverted introvert, if that makes sense. I can talk to large crowds and things like that, but um, I'm not, I'm not the conversation starter like he was. So I was the analytical one and I helped him set up the office, create a contact management system and, you let all his clients knew where he was have to had to have you know dial up internet to track people down <laughs> that was my job and then eventually i had to get uh, an insurance license because people were asking me questions about their annuities and things like that and back then annuities certain annuities like fixed annuities were good because capital gains taxes were 27 percent plus 
and people were looking for other ways to defer money because they could only put $10,000 into their 401k and 2000 into an IRA. And they were actually you know, good products. But then tax law changed. And as I got into the business, I was looking at some of these annuities products and these loaded mutual funds where people would have to pay 5% to get in. And mathematically, they just didn't make a lot of sense. And so, you know, I was a spreadsheet guy and I started asking questions like, why aren't we using these funds at Vanguard and charging a fee and things like that? And so I transitioned pretty quickly at a very young age to fee only fiduciary based planning because I was kind of, I just didn't like salespeople. I didn't, I mean, I'm talking about the salespeople that, you know, kind of feel slimy, like the real cheesy, slick back hair, used car sales guy kind of a situation. And to me, selling and financial advice when I was dealing with your future just didn't make sense at all, especially in light of, you know, the internet world coming along and people access to information was going to grow. I just kind of saw the writing on the wall. And finally, the government is, is kind of coming around to this. And, and one of the reasons why I saw this is because we were dealing with certain types of insurance products, whether it was variable life insurance where people were sold this program where, hey, look inside of this, there's all these stock market investments, but it's inside of an insurance policy. So when you take the money out, it's tax free. You see these kind of crap ads on social media all the time about these, you know, uh, guys that are, this is how I pay zero taxes. And it's always life insurance pitch pitches for sales for life insurance. Well, when you actually read the prospectus on these things and you look under the hood, you're talking about fees and these types of life insurance products and variable annuities that approach three and a half percent or more in some cases. And man, is a sales pitch good because typically when a person is selling you an annuity, if you're going to put in a hundred grand, they're going to make five thousand to seven thousand dollars. So you can bet the sales pitch is really good. And especially on these variable annuities that were coming into play where uh, here's a stock market-like investment, but it's inside of an insurance policy. And so it looks like a normal IRA account, but they say, hey, when you turn a certain age, you're going to get this income that you cannot outlive. You can live till you're 120 years old, and they're still going to continue to pay you even if your account's out of money. And that makes people feel really safe. Well... When you actually do the math and you realize that, number one, the insurance company is never on the hook for these guaranteed lifetime products until your account goes to zero, and you look at stock market history and the idea that you've never had a 10-year period where a balanced portfolio has lost money. Now, you've had some pretty mediocre returns like 2007 to 2017, where I think globally diversified balanced portfolio averaged 5.2% or something like that. So you get these periods of low, but... All you have to get when you do the math from 65 to, to 95 is about a 4% rate of return to typically beat what those annuities are offering. So there are some no-load products that don't pay a commission that have much lower fee structure that makes sense when bonds are yielding well less than 4%. But we're approaching a point where bonds are going to be yielding more than that, and most of these products are not going to make sense anymore. So what's been happening throughout the last 15, 20 years is you would get a person that was changing jobs or retiring, and they go out to seek financial advice, 
And so they, they work with somebody that's a so-called financial advisor, but they're really an insurance salesperson. And they're giving you a sales pitch that says you should roll this 401k into this variable annuity because not only is it invested in the stock market and bond market through sub-accounts, but it'll create income that you can't outlive because the insurance company says that, hey, no matter how long you live, we're going to pay X number of dollars. And so people are rolling you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of their life savings into this stuff, not realizing that if they would have read the prospectus, there's extra fees equating to $3,500 a year on that hundred grand, 3.5%, right? $3,500 a year on a $100,000 investment every single year. And so with the idea that Americans are so drastically underprepared for retirement, I mean, it's, it's bad. It's like, you know, it's either people are really well prepared or you're screwed. That's kind of what I tend to see, unfortunately, in the business. And, um, you know, because a lot of it has to do with zero financial education in school. Zero. Um, so the government, the Department of Labor, the SEC, FINRA, everybody's been looking at this. And the Department of Labor is moving toward tightening its existing fiduciary definition by possibly aiming all advice, even first-time conversations that whether you're an investment advisor, a financial advisor, an insurance agent or whatever, as a fiduciary advice. Um, the DOL's investment advice package, which, which went live in July, already renders as a fiduciary any rollover advice on an advisor or financial professional delivered to investors regarding their retirement accounts a fiduciary act. And so there's all sorts of things that advisors are supposed to be doing when they're giving somebody advice that says, okay, you, this is your 401k, you should roll it over to this IRA, there should be a fee comparison, a comparison of investments, um, all sorts of stuff that goes on. Because the Department of Labor, especially is trying to stop people from rolling over their 401ks into garbage insurance products. There are some decent annuities out there in the no load or no commission world now for fee-only fiduciary advisors, but 98% of annuities are garbage and you should steer clear of them. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. Now back to New Focus on Wealth on AM 1220 KDOW. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Chad Burton, Certified Financial Planner. If you have a money question, just shoot me an email. Here's one from Alyssa. Hi, Chad. Since I am retired and no longer putting money into my Roth IRA, how will it grow? For example, I have 100000 in a Vanguard S&P-like fund. Does it buy more shares with reinvested gains? And how do those gains come about since I am not adding money? Do I wait for balances to be higher to pull money out when needed for maximize, to maximize growth? Uh, I always learn so much from you breaking these things down on your show. All right. Great question. Um, and a lot of times once people you know, retire, they, they start to pay a little bit more attention to their money and these questions come up. And so it sounds like in a Roth IRA, she has $100,000 in an S&P 500 like fund. First of all, Roth IRAs, if it's something that you're trying to let it grow tax-free for years and years, they'd probably get a little bit more diversified. So you have some small and mid cap and things like that in there. That's number one. Uh, but you got to look at the rest of the portfolio and see, because I, I just find so many people are still overweighted in large cap growth because the S&P has been so popular for the last several years. Uh, but the S&P has changed to be more of a tech-weighted index, so keep that in mind. Okay, so let's go over a little bit of market history here a little bit, because she's asking about dividends and, and, and what happens to those dividends and how does it grow. 
if you look back over, you know, 100 year periods, you typically hear that the S&P 500 averages 10 to 11%. And of that, you have growth in the share price, but you also have dividends on the S&P 500. So the majority of the companies in the S&P 500 pay a dividend on a quarterly basis. The current dividend yield, if you look at, say, SPY, which is an ETF that invests in the S&P 500, the dividend yield is 1.44%. So of your $100,000, you're going to get $1,440 a year or so of dividends if you invest right now. And it depends on how your account is set. So typically, if you own a mutual fund, like a Vanguard S&P 500 mutual fund, it's going to reinvest the dividends, but also it's going to kick off some capital gains in December of each year from selling some, if if stocks inside the S&P 500 changed and they sold the stock for a gain, you also end up with another dividend towards the end of the year where the share price drops, but the dividend comes and it buys more shares. So most people in their 401k and IRAs, their dividends are being reinvested. Okay. So you have the growth in the share price, and that's 70% of the time the share price is growing on average, 30% of the time you go through a, a, a negative year. But no matter what, you have those dividends coming in of 1.44% right now. And those dividends are typically in a 401k, for example, buying more shares. Now, if you go to a brokerage account like Schwab, TD Ameritrade, Fidelity, and you buy an ETF like SPY, IVV, VOO. Those are all ETFs that invest in the S&P 500. They're pretty much the same thing, just different fee structures. After you buy it, you typically have to go back in and tell the firm, Schwab, Fidelity, TD, whatever, that you want those dividends reinvested. So if you're at the age where you're building wealth and you're adding money all the time, it's very important to have those dividends reinvested to automatically buy more shares on a quarterly basis. Because when you go through a year that the market's down, you're buying shares cheaper. So, you know, like in TD Ameritrade, I think you go, if you own the ETF, you go to the account section, you go to dividend reinvestment program, and you click on it, and it pulls up all your positions, and you can see which positions are enrolled in dividend reinvestment and which aren't. And that's an easy way to buy free shares or buy more shares with those dividends. So if we look at the historical returns, and let's just look at the last 50 years ending at the end of December, the average return for the S&P 500 was 12.3%. Now, over this last 50-year period, the market was actually positive 78% of the time, and the average gain on the S&P 500 over the last 50 years, on those 78% of the years that were positive, was up 19.4%. When the S&P 500 was negative, the other 22% of the time, the average loss was 14%. That's what I was talking about earlier in the show. This is a pretty average year for a negative year as we're sitting right now. So negative 14%. So over the last 50 years, the S&P 500 average annual return was 12.3%. The biggest year, the best year it had was 37.6%. The worst year, which was obviously 2008, was down 37%, yet we recovered. Yet we recovered. So when you look forward, you have to expect on your portfolio that the market's positive 70% of the time, negative 30% of the time. 
And when it is negative, that's the time when you continue to reinvest your dividends and, and, and try to find ways to buy more stocks when it's negative. When everybody else is scared, that's when you start to try to buy more. Now, when you get to the phase of distribution planning, when you are going into retirement, you have to do different steps to planning. You have to say, okay, here's all of my expenses, including taxes and healthcare costs. Here's my automatic income from, from Social Security and pension. Uh, maybe here's my income from my dependable rental properties. Um, and what dividends and interest are you getting on your, your taxable accounts, your non-retirement accounts that you're going to you know, pay taxes on anyway? What's that number? You know, your, your total expenses minus the dependable income. And you, you end up with a result that is your annual portfolio draw over and above your dividends and interest. And you should have three years worth of that in cash by the time you get into retirement. And not necessarily cash, like in a checking account, but safe, safe money. Online FDIC insured banks, like Flourish, Capital One 360, which by the way, check your rates at Capital One 360. They keep pulling this stuff on people where their, their old rates have dropped and you have to open up a new account to get the, you know, north of 1.5%. But just just different. You have to have it safe, and then you on the accounts that you you're going to need to draw in retirement. You you got to make sure you turn off the dividend reinvestment. You switch gears and you say, okay, here's my taxable account at Schwab or my joint account or trust account with my spouse, and you realize that okay, this is the the yield, maybe around two point four percent or so if you've invested correctly, or even higher if you have bonds. Stop reinvesting those dividends if you are spending money out of your portfolio and have those dividends just sent to your checking account. And so it's a, it's a switch of gears, right? So Lisa, if this is money that you're not going to need for 10, 12 years, you should be reinvesting in dividends. If you need it for income to pay bills, you shouldn't be investing your dividends, reinvesting your dividends. So I hope that makes sense because it's really an important part of distribution planning that even a lot of financial advisors miss. It's like, I look at statements all the time for a retired person that comes in to get a second opinion on what they're doing. And I'm seeing these dividends reinvested on a statement, yet they're pulling money out on a monthly basis. And it just doesn't make any sense. Um, it's going to continue to grow. You're going to have years or a couple periods of time where it's not. Um, when I got to the business back in 93, um, you know, I was majoring in engineering and math. So what I did is I just looked at the stock market. I said, oh, okay, well, going back all the way to the Great Depression, there was only one period of time when I got in the business where the market was down three years in a row. And that was right after the, the Depression. The economy started to recover, and then the feds started raising rates too soon, and it threw us back into a recession, and we had three years in a row of negative S&P 500 returns. It wasn't that bad, though. It was, it was fairly mild. And then there was a lot of periods of time where the market was down two years in a row. 73 and 74 was when I pointed to that the market was down a little over 40%, but then the next two years, it was up 60, but it took another year after that to actually break even. And so I looked at those numbers and I'm like, all right, well, I just know mathematically, I never want to be pulling from my portfolio when the market's down because it will always recover. It could take six months, it could take two years, it could take three years. But mathematically, if you sell shares after a decline, you're not going to have as much money in the account to recover. 
but it always will recover since it's positive 70% of the time. So that's where I came up with, and you've been hearing me on radio since 1999, preaching three years worth of portfolio draws and save money five years prior to retirement. So the question is, the, the, the follow-up question from Elisa is, do I wait for balances to be higher to pull money out when it's needed to maximize growth? And the, the answer to that question is yes. When you have a negative stock market and you've properly allocated your investments in your retirement plan, if you look at your overall expenses, you're going to have some of it covered by Social Security, some of it maybe by pension, some of it maybe by dependable rental income, some of it by dividends and interest from your taxable non-retirement accounts. Everything else, you should have three years worth of portfolio draws in cash to cover the rest so that you can make sure that if we do have, let's say, another negative year in 2023, I don't know if we will or not, kind of, yeah, who knows? But you should know that, oh, okay, I got enough cash, Social Security, dividends and interest to last five to seven years before I ever have to sell shares of stocks or bonds again. And so, yeah, you're going to need to wait if you can. If you have other cash to live off of, you're going to need to wait to pull out stuff until the account recovers. And then, but looking forward, you should assume that over a you know thirty-five year retirement, stocks will probably average around ten percent. Bonds, no, not that much over the next five years. That's for sure. Bonds are going to be a little bit lower than they used to be for a while. But you just have to make sure that as the market does recover and it gets back to recovering and it starts to go back into positive territory, you then start to sell and take the gains out of the portfolio equal to the amount of cash that you're spending so that your safe money is always ready for the next bear market. Hope that makes sense. It's 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 a big part of investing. It's, you know, dividends and interests. If you look at the overall dividends and interest in your portfolio, it helps you realize that oh, I still get paid in the bad times. There's still passive income. We'll take a quick break. I'll be right back. You're listening to New Focus on Wealth on AM 1220 KDOW. Welcome back into the show. I'm your host, Chad Burton, Certified Financial Planner. Need some help with your retirement plan, just go to chadburton.com, find out more about our team. Certified Financial Planner practitioners, legal team, tax team, we got it all. All aspects of the financial plan at EP Wealth, check it out. Um, but So let's talk about inflation here for a minute, because we're likely sitting here at peak inflation, right? Because if we're going to look at results from a year from now after this last inflation print and all these commodity prices have gone down and you know we start to get out of China being shut down and hopefully supply chain issues somewhat repairing, um, we're likely to see much lower inflation prints a year from now. But we're not going to be at the 2% inflation that we've enjoyed for the last several years. And we have to look at what's happening for retirees. Yeah, we have this big increase in Social Security coming down the pike, likely. But there's a recent paper from the Center for Retirement Research at Boston College, and they said after out-of-pocket medical costs, including premiums, cost-sharing, and uncovered services, consumers have an average of just 75% of their Social Security benefits available for spending on other items. Social Security was meant to keep people out of poverty. It was not meant to be a main source of retirement income, but fortunately it is for most of Americans. And so most Americans are spending 25% of their Social Security benefits on healthcare costs for premiums for Medicare Part B and D, Medicare Advantage, supplemental plans, co-pays, other out-of-pockets costs that retirees pay. 
out-of-pocket spending for medical costs has a bigger impact on women and those in low-income households. So that's something that's specific to planning for women, especially when there's you know an age difference or a health difference, and and um, you know females tend to live longer, but they also tend to spend more time in nursing homes, for example. And it's a little bit alarming because there's just such an issue in the U.S. in terms of people being underprepared for retirement. Luckily, that you know, with healthcare advances, people can work a little longer. But you know, the age 65 retirement is is a pipe dream for most retirees in America. We're looking at 14 and a half percent increase in Medicare Part B premiums, for example. And so with inflation on food and energy and, and healthcare costs, that's why a lot of retirees feel like making ends meet is very, very difficult in the author of this paper. So what are some of the, now is a good time when you're sitting at, okay, peak inflation and you realize that, oh, maybe I underestimated my expenses and this is what things truly cost. It's a very, very good time right now to really go back through your, your budget to see, is your financial plan on track? What have you forgotten to put into your list of expenses in retirement? The things that I typically see underestimated are healthcare costs, especially for people retiring before 65. If you look at the cost of COBRA for 18 months and then going on like the, you know, if, if you're in California, the covered California platinum plan, it's very expensive. And then you turn 65, you still have to get Medicare Part B. And if you are, uh, single making over, what is it, 90 or married making over 180,000 modified adjusted gross income, which includes your social security, your tax-free bonds and everything, you, you start to have to pay more for your Medicare Part B premiums. So that's called IRMA. It's like an extra tax. And then vacations. Oh my gosh, this is one where I start to see budgets. Oh, I'm going to spend $5,000 a year in vacation. Well, okay, if you're going camping a few times, because that's not what inflation vacations cost now. I, um, last one I took was to Turks and Caicos and then over to Bahamas in Nassau. Talk about expensive. Um, I, I don't think I'd do the Caribbean again unless I was just on a boat the entire time because sitting in those larger casinos is really not for me. Not casinos, but like the, the the large resorts that have casinos and just too many people It's too crowded. I couldn't have a lunch for two people for under a hundred bucks. It seemed like, um, so vacations, the, the inflation on vacations has gotten, it's pretty interesting. Um, so the, the other thing is, is that a lot of people don't have any sort of focus on health and exercise because they've been working 40, 60 hours a week. They're, they need to really spend the first part of their retirement focusing on themselves and routine and getting into fitness and exercise. If you're like me, maybe your healthcare budget's kind of off the charts with infrared saunas and cold plunges and lots of supplements like amino acids and creatine and all sorts of stuff. But when you get into retirement, the thing I don't want you to do is be a chronic cardio person. People that just run every single day are not healthy in the long run. If that's all you do is just run every day, uh, your cortisol levels increase. It's not good for you. In, in retirement, the people that diversify their exercise, you have to have a weightlifting program that helps with your bone density. And so that studies are showing that people that kind of do weights, 
they do some bike riding, they do a racket sport, and lots of walking are very healthy. In fact, having a walk right after you eat is something that helps control blood sugar. Um, and, you know, that's kind of the stuff that you got to deal with is just changing in diet. I talk about that on air over the last two decades. I've had to change workout programs and diets a few times as I've aged. Other things that people forget. So you're going to spend a lot of money on that stuff. And that's to enjoy life. And you want to make sure you really focus on your health so you're not spending your you know, late 70s and 80s going to the doctor three or four times a week. The other thing is people forget about a new car every seven to 10 years, for example, and those occasional home repairs that occur. Um, you know, a new roof, um, you know, even if it's like later in life, fixing stairs to a ramp, that, those types of things. And then also gifts as you age and you have more grandkids, you say, okay, you get the first grandkid. Hey, let's put 10,000 into a 529 plan for that one. All of a sudden, six years later, you have five more grandkids and another 50 grand into 529 plans for their college education you didn't think about because you did it for the first one. Now you got to do it for all of them. So those are the kind of things. It's a good time on on this high inflation environment to take a fresh look at your expenses and what it's going to look like in retirement and reforecast your financial plan. And you have to have a certain amount of inflation on normal costs and at least 5% inflation on healthcare costs when you're doing cash flow projections. If you need help with that, that's what we do. You can find me at chadburton.com, Facebook, LinkedIn, iTunes, the podcast. It's all at chadburton.com. Have a great day. Please tell a friend about the show.